Hi everyone, I hope you're doing well. We are continuing our exploration through the biblical world as we try to understand uh, the culture that Bible was originally written to. And again, that's not because that their culture was better than our own, uh, but simply because by understanding that world a little bit better, we'll, be, we'll uh, better be equipped to be able to understand the beauty and truths of God's Word. Now, uh, for a quick recap, uh, we started at the beginning of this series saying that the Western world that we live in is very, very different from the Eastern world that the Bible was originally written to. Now, um, not only did they speak a different language and uh, wear different clothes and live in a region that is geographically very different from our own, uh, but their values and the way that they viewed the world and, and viewed God were very, very different from the way we do. Um, now, um, we said that uh, if we're to be good Bible readers, uh, then we have to begin um, our study of God's Word by understanding what it meant to the original audience. And that's what the goal of this whole series is about, is uh, to better under, uh, understand and uh, explore the various themes, values, and images that we find in the biblical culture. Now, uh, last week we did a quick study of the family relationships. We called it kinship. Uh, and while there are some similarities between our family structures and the family structures that we see in the Bible, there are also many important differences. And we looked at the patriarchy. Uh, we looked at the customs of firstborn children and the inheritance that they often received and how that plays into many of the uh, biblical passages and stories that we find throughout the Bible. Now, this week, we're going to explore the cultural values of honor and shame that we see in Eastern cultures like that of the Bible. Now, I'm going to confess right out, right out of the gate uh, that this is one of the more difficult topics for me to kind of wrestle with. I don't find it difficult because it steps on toes uh, and easily offends people. Uh, instead, the reason why I really find this difficult is because um, the way that Eastern cultures, like, like what we find in Scripture, uh, the way that um, they view honor and shame is very difficult for us in our culture to understand. We often think of shame in, purely, uh, in a purely negative light. Uh, we never want to shame anyone, and we find, um, and when we find someone who does feel shame, feel, uh, um, we often feel like someone has done something wrong to that person to make them feel ashamed in that way. But in the biblical world, shame is a very important and valuable thing. It's not necessarily always a negative thing. In fact, uh, in many cases, it's a positive thing that we see in Scripture. Uh, it factored into nearly every area of their life, and it was um, uh, the community's responsibility to properly shame individuals from time to time. And that just sounds uh, very foreign to uh, many of us that uh, families, um, churches, or synagogues, or communities they were supposed to shame people at certain times. Um, we'll get into that in just a little bit. And in fact, most scholars believe uh, that it was um, because of honor and shame uh, that the religious leaders sought to crucify Jesus. Uh, he shamed them publicly, uh, and because of that, they wanted to restore their honor in the eyes of the people, and they thought that uh, killing him in one of the most shameful ways uh, of that day would restore much of their honor. Now, we're going to get into that a little bit later on towards the end of our study. Uh, but just, again, it, from Old Testament to New Testament, this idea of honor and shame 
uh, is throughout Scripture, and it's not always a negative light, although it can this honor shame can be used in negative ways. So we'll get into that in just a little bit. Now, if all this sounds really weird, uh, you're not alone. Like I said, uh, I find this very uh, weird as well, but hopefully by the end of our uh, time here this evening, uh, this will make a little bit more uh, sense. Now, we should probably start by acknowledging that different cultures differ on what is considered honorable and what is considered shameful. Now, that may seem like a really obvious statement, but it's important to keep in the back of your mind as we consider honor and shame, because um, as, uh, especially as it relates to Scripture, uh, because as you read through the Bible, you're going to encounter you're going to encounter various cultures that honor and shame different things. Uh, the Jews. Um, valued very different things than the Romans or the Babylonians or the Egyptians. And when these cultures uh, come together, you see these uh, these certain cultural values begin to collide. And it's important that we realize that when we come to various portions of the scripture. For instance, uh, while most of the cultures of that day, uh, and even today for that matter, they, um, they honored uh, their military might, their large armies, and things like that, Israel was commanded by God not to honor and value those things. This was because God wanted them to trust in Him and Him alone. They were not to be a, a kingdom that dominated others through power, but a nation that trusted God and blessed other nations uh, through their relationship uh, with God. This is why Scripture criticized King David and King Solomon for building up armies and amassing chariots. It's because that was not to be the thing that they valued. They were supposed to be different from all other nations, uh, and that was to be reflected in what they honored and what they, um, what they shamed. Uh, and so just keep that in mind. Now, understanding how uh, dif um, uh, different cultural values uh, honor different things is also important to remember because when Jews and Gentiles um, are born again into the family of God, they exchange their old values for new ones. Whenever they, uh, you go from one culture to another culture and you assimilate into that culture, you adopt their values for your own. So what once brought them honor, idol, idols, legalism, pride, things like that, now brought them shame when they entered into the kingdom of God. And things that once brought them shame, such as, such as serving others, you know, being like a servant, being like a slave, uh, putting others first, blessing your enemies, turning the other cheek, things like that, now brought them honor with their new community of believers. And so it's important to remember how different cultures uh, valued and honored different things because we see, again, in earthly cultures, you know, Judaism, uh, Romans, Egyptians, Babylonians, Assyrians, all those, they value different things. And those things um, come out in the text when they the, those cultures um, collide. But also in the New Testament, where people come from a culture of this world into the kingdom of God, their values are exchanged, and, and there's, um, there's important things to remember when you see that happening. Now, by now, you've probably noticed that shame isn't always a bad thing. Technically, in these cultures that we find in the Bible, shame is a very good thing, as we said before. It indicates that you and your community know the proper way to behave. You've probably uh, had a sense of shame um, as you were growing up. It was instilled in you. You probably uh, heard people, maybe your, your um, grandparents, uh, thing, uh, say things uh, like, don't you have any shame? 
Uh, because if you didn't have shame, you would be shameless. Uh, these are common words that maybe you've heard uh, in your, in your, um, as you've grown up uh, to communicate that there is an idea of shame that is good, that you should have these moral boundaries around your life that are instilled into you through uh, your family, through your community, through your church, that we don't do these things. There's an identity that you have either as being an American or being a member of your family or being a part of the church that because I identify in this group, in this community, we don't do these things because uh, there's shame that is brought through it. Or we do do these things because uh, honor and, and um, uh, esteem and value is brought to those things. And so, um, again, just a little example. There are some uh, ties into our culture uh, as it relates to the positive side of shame. So I don't always want us to see uh, shame as a negative thing because that's certainly not what Scripture teaches. Now, there are many occurrences in the Bible where God or a prophet is trying to shame people in the right behavior into a, a better way of living. For instance, in Malachi 1.6, I know we don't usually read from Malachi. Uh, it's one of those small Old Testament prophets that people avoid. But in Malachi uh, 1 verse 6, God uses shame in a good way for the people of Israel. It says this, God says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts to you, priests who despise my name. Here God is shaming the priests of Malachi's day by showing them how disrespectful and dishonoring they have been towards him. He is trying to use shame to, again, um, pressure them or, again, to use our, our our word of the week, shame them into doing what is right. Shame is a good thing that moves people, hopefully, in the right direction. Paul does the exact same thing in 1 Corinthians 6, where he rebukes the Christians there in the city of Corinth for uh, taking their disputes to the civil authorities rather than addressing them in the church. His basic argument goes something like this. Um, do you not have a few people in your church wise enough and godly enough to sort these things out? Now, um, probably they do. Probably they do have people who are wise enough and godly enough to sort out those things. The problem that Paul is really addressing in this passage is that uh, the most of the uh, Christians there in Corinth are unwilling to submit to the proper authorities within the church, the people that God has given them to guide them and direct them. So Paul concludes in verse 5 as he's kind of wrapping up this whole idea uh, of them using the church to settle these disputes and being willing to submit to the leadership of the church. He says, I say this to your shame. He's giving this example. He's pointing their attention to this in order to shame them that surely you wouldn't go and do this out in front of all the people that you're trying to share the gospel with. You need to handle this within the church. And I'm saying this to your shame. He's trying to shame them to do the right thing. Now, this biblical shame that we're looking at here, this is being shown in these passages and others like them. Uh, it's a type of community conscience. Now, we're really familiar with the idea of all of us having a conscience, that voice within your heart, that internal guiding system that God has given us to point us towards the right thing, to keep us from the bad things, and to point us to the right things. And while there is certainly some of that in the biblical world, this idea of this internal individual conscience, again, we need to remember, we said this at the beginning of the series, in the biblical world and in the Eastern culture, 
there is less of the individual and more of the community. Uh, individuals are guided by this communal identity. And so in much the same way, uh, instead of there being a focus on an individual conscience within you, while there is that at times, the vast majority of scripture is all about the communal conscience. This idea of shame and honor in a culture, uh, what other people uh, will think of me, how other people will perceive me, and that guiding and directing, hopefully, the individual's behavior in a godly and more um, uh, righteous path. Now, we can uh, we see this a lot of times in Scripture, but oftentimes we overlook it or we just miss it because we're not used to thinking in that collective type of uh, uh, mentality. Um, but there is, there is this idea of, of community conscience all throughout Scripture. Now, a great example of this is with David and Bathsheba. Now, most of y'all are probably familiar with the, the story of David and Bathsheba. And while uh, David's men were off fighting a war, David uh, is at uh, the palace and he sees one of the wives of his soldier uh, bathing. And uh, he tells his servant to go and bring her to him so that he may sleep with her. And then afterwards, he sends her away. And when he finds out that she's pregnant, he tries to cover it up and eventually uh, has her husband killed. Now, what we often miss in this story of, uh, of David and Bathsheba is that David seems to feel little to no shame at all with what he's done. Now, it could be that he is struggling inwardly, but the text doesn't seem to indicate that he is. He doesn't, doesn't really show in any form or fashion that David is broken up at all about a lot of the sin that uh, has happened. Uh, that he that he has done. Uh, in fact, it's likely that David wasn't really bothered uh, that much by what uh, was done because, after all, what he did um, he, he he did basically what every other king all throughout the world at that time did. Literally, every king in that in that time in history, they saw what they wanted. They take they would take it, and there were just no consequences because the king does what the king wants to do. And so, and and what. A part of what the Bible is trying to teach us there with that David Bathsheba is that David has kind of uh, bought into uh, doing things the way of the world. You know, uh, Israel, uh, originally they weren't supposed to have a king, but they wanted to be like all the other, other nations and have a king. And now they have a king. And instead of David remembering that ultimately God is the king and he needs to follow God and be different from the rest of the world, he's beginning to look at the other kings, what the other kings do, and he's beginning to model his life after them. Uh, and so what we see is David is acting like everyone else, all the other kings doing what the king does. And there is plenty of people around him who know what is going on, and none of them have shamed David for his actions. That shame would have brought David uh, back into alignment with the godly values of the kingdom. But again, he told the servant to go get, first he asked who the woman was. The servant said, this is Bathsheba the wife of one of your uh, soldiers, you know, hoping uh, to spark some uh, conscience in David, uh, but nothing happens. And so he sends the servant to go get her. The servant brings her back. You know there were no secrets in the palace. You know, a gossip spreads like wildfire. It was a small community. And so uh, everyone pretty much probably knew what David had done, and yet no one is brave enough to confront the king and to shame him for his actions. That is until the prophet Nathan comes and shames David to his face, then finally, because someone has finally confronted David, uh, then he finally shows remorse for what he's done. And when the community conscience shames David, he is redirected and he's restored. And so this is a, just a good textbook example of 
not so much of a focus on the inward individual conscience of the person, but the collective communal conscience and how that shame and honor guides and directs. David was shamed. He was dishonored uh, when uh, his sin was brought forth in a public way in, uh, to his face, and, and that shaped and redirected his life. And we see this time and time again throughout Scripture. Now, in our, uh, our culture has some of this community conscience as well. I can remember my mom reminding me and my brothers not to embarrass her when uh, we went off to places. And this was a form of community conscience that kept us from shaming our family. I can remember as a youth pastor uh, reminding our youth on trips that you're representing God. Oh, I'm sorry, you're representing church first. Uh, you're representing church, and then you're also representing God as well. And this was a kind of way to uh, remind them that uh, we are a community, we are a group, and your actions can either bring honor to the group or shame the group. And it was a way of guiding people's um, behavior and things like that. And that's a healthy thing to do. It's, it's a biblical thing to do. We see that time and time again throughout Scripture. Now, the difference between our culture and the Eastern culture of the Bible is that this community conscience is the primary way People's morality is guided, whereas ours emphasizes the individual conscience. And it's neither right or wrong. It's just different, different ways of God using the culture to accomplish his purposes. Now, the other side of shame is honor. Now, honor means to esteem or to hold in high regard. And often in Scripture, it is translated as glory. So when we glorify uh, God, we are honoring him or we're giving him honor and honoring his name. But people can receive honor as well. So it's not just something that, that God gets. It's also something that we can get as well. And one way people can have honor is uh, by being born with it. This is a um, kind of like when the British royal family uh, has a new kid. That, that kid, without doing anything, uh, they are born with honor just by simply being born into a particular family. And we see this uh, with the honor of the firstborn that we talked about last week. Being born into a certain family can either bring honor or bring shame. Now, this idea of being born with honor is what Paul references when he says in Acts uh, 23, 6, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, son of a Pharisee. Now, this was meant to communicate honor in the eyes of the Pharisees that Paul was addressing. There was a certain prestige and a certain uh, amount of honor that was given because he wasn't just a Pharisee, but he was a son of a Pharisee as well. And so there's a little bit more honor that was given to Paul, uh, and that was his point in addressing them and, and to get their attention. Now, there's also biblical examples of people being born without honor. Uh, one example is uh, Jephthah. Uh, and Judges 11, he is an illegitimate son of an Israelite, and therefore he's born without any honor in his community. He's pushed to the fringes of society, and so he begins hanging out with other rough men who are, are without honor. And it isn't until his community needs him and his rough and rowdy friends to save them from their enemies that he achieves honor by liberating them and becoming their leader. Which brings us to the next way a person can receive honor. Uh, and that is by what they achieve or what they do. And we can see this in uh, Joseph when he's uh, honored by Pharaoh by being able to interpret the uh, Pharaoh's dream. Uh, it's seen repeatedly by Moses as the Israelites dishonor him by grumbling constantly in the wilderness. But then God honors him through various miracles that Moses performs. And then we see this in David being honored by Saul and the nation 
of Israel when he defeats Goliath, and the list can go on and on and on of people uh, who do things, and because of what they've done, their honor. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time uh, on this achieved honor of what people do because we are very familiar with this uh, concept. We understand uh, why someone who does something great gets honor. We can think of monuments and buildings named after people who have done great things. Uh, just like uh, this week, uh, we uh, celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. Day because of the great things that he accomplished. So we're, we're readily familiar with that idea. So instead, what I'd like to do is direct your attention to another aspect of honor that is related to achievement, and that is um, the concept of honor contest. Um, and this is where uh, individuals confront one another, um, and one is honored and the other one is shamed or dishonored. Uh, this is found throughout Scripture, and once you uh, get used to spotting these, uh, you'll begin seeing them everywhere because Scripture is just riddled with these honor contests. Now, uh, an example of this would be uh, when Moses goes to Egypt to liberate the Israelites uh, from slavery. Most scholars believe that what's actually occurring uh, through the plagues of Egypt is an honor contest between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the gods of Egypt. That each plague is shaming a different Egyptian god by showing that uh, the God of Israel is more powerful. And then the last plague with the death of the firstborn in Egypt is shaming uh, Pharaoh himself, who claimed to be a god, uh, by showing that uh, even though he claimed to be a god, he couldn't uh, protect his own firstborn, his own heir. Uh, and so that's one example of these honor contests between God and the gods of uh, Egypt. Likewise, uh, the battle between David and Goliath uh, is not really about David and Goliath. It's really an honor contest between the god of Israel and Dagon, the god of the Philistines. Um, and you can see this clearly by how David understands Goliath's taunts. Um, uh, he basically uh, says, what shall be done? Uh, this is what David says, what shall be done uh, for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy, uh, defy the armies of the living God? See, David even here says, uh, listen, why are we letting this uncircumcised Philistine, what a derogatory term that would have been in um, the uh, Israel worldview, this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. See, he said, he's basically pointing to the fact that this is really a battle between the Philistines and the God of Israel, or the God of the Philistines and the God of Israel. So then David goes and he confronts Goliath. And notice what David says. He says, you come to me with sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord uh, will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcass of the camp, uh, of, the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the beasts of, of the earth, and all the earth will know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Now, I hope you notice all throughout that passage, David is constantly pointing to, God is going to do this. God is going to deliver you into my hands. And, and then the world is going to know that there's a God in Israel, for the battle is the Lord's. Over and over again, he's showing that this battle is not between David and Goliath, but it's between God, uh, the God of Israel, and the God of the Philistines, between God and, and Goliath himself. And so, 
again, it's this honor contest whose God is going to protect, whose God is going uh, to win the day. And you could go on, we could talk about uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal and how it's really a contest between the, the God of Elijah and the God uh, of, uh, of um, Baal. And um, there's a whole contest going on there. We could talk about Daniel and Babylon where uh, the the wise men of Babylon are, are trying to pick a fight with Daniel. And uh, time and time again, it's, it's Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego against this honor contest. Who will be honored? Who will be vindicated? Uh, but I want to close our time really talking about Jesus and the Pharisees uh, because there's a lot that goes on there uh, that I think is really interesting. Numerous times throughout Jesus' life, he's confronted by the religious leaders of his day. Uh, they would often ask him a question, trying to trip him up in public so as to shame him in front of the people. This would bring uh, honor to them for exposing this false teacher, and it would discourage people from following Jesus. Uh, but instead, what would often happen is Jesus would uh, uh, confound them and would trip them up, uh, which would then shame them in the eyes of the people and would bring more followers to Jesus. And this continued to build up until eventually the religious leaders decided uh, that in order to restore their honor, they were going to have to kill Jesus. Now, I know that sounds kind of strange to us, but honor killings are still um, uh, very common all throughout the world, unfortunately. Uh, and uh, they believe that if they could publicly uh, shame Jesus by having him killed for blasphemy and, and hung on a cross, which again, uh, throughout um, uh, Judaism, that was a sign of a curse, uh, then they would bring greater honor to uh, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. Now, an example of this is in Matthew 12. The Pharisees try to shame Jesus because his disciples are plucking and eating grain on the Sabbath, and they considered that, according to the tradition, as work. And Jesus shames them by pointing out examples in Scripture where God values mercy more than legalism. He talks about David taking the showbread from the temple, and, and it basically just confounds the Pharisees and frustrates them again. And then it goes on, it says, uh, in Matthew 12, it says, Now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue, and behold, there was a man with a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So again, here we are, and we know that this is an honor contest because they're not privately going to Jesus and asking out of a, a genuine sense of curiosity about this, like Nicodemus said, they're trying to do this in public. They want everyone listening. They want everyone watching in order to shame Jesus. And so Jesus looks at him and he says, uh, what man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay, uh, lay hold of it and lift it out? How much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So again, Jesus just shames them publicly by essentially saying, every last one of you, if you were to have a sheep fall into a ditch on the Sabbath, you would still rescue it. But you, are you really sitting here telling me that you wouldn't heal a man just because of the Sabbath? You would save a sheep, but not a person? So he publicly shames uh, the Pharisees in front of everyone else. But then Jesus does something that I think is just so funny. He he. He shames them. He goes above and beyond, and he, he doesn't technically do anything. He doesn't work or really do anything uh, to heal this man. He simply says, stretch out your hand. And so when the man stretches out his hand, 
he's restored. So Jesus really just knocks it out of the park by not doing anything um, as far as work is concerned, and yet he still accomplishes the healing. And so this, again, just shames them in their callous attitude towards this man uh, in, in just a spectacular way. And so none of this was missed on the Pharisees because the very next verse says, then the Pharisees went out and plotted against them how they might destroy him. They were so shamed yet again that they said, okay, this is it. That I can't take anymore. We've got to kill this individual. And it's all because uh, they wanted their honor restored back to them. Uh, and so this idea of honor and shame is just throughout scripture. And it's not a bad thing. I know it's sometimes a foreign thing to us. We think of honor, you know, that could be prideful. We need to be careful of that shame, you know, that's associated with all this negative stuff. But uh, according to the Bible, this was a big part of their culture. And it's not neg uh, necessarily a negative thing. This is something that was just a part of their world that God used to work to, to guide and shape their hearts. And we could probably learn a little bit from it. Do we need to adopt all of this? No, surely not. Uh, but in understanding it, we'll understand Scripture a little bit better. So I hope I did a good job uh, explaining that. Again, this is a concept that's kind of foreign to me as well. I'm still wrestling with it. But the more I, I grapple with this and try to understand it, the more I can understand certain passages of Scripture a little bit better. And so I hope it's been a blessing to you. Uh, there are a lot of books uh, that address this. If this is something you're interested in, I, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll uh, reference some of these uh, in, um, in, in, in uh, this podcast or in this video. Uh, I'll show some of those uh, to you, uh, and I hope that you'll take time to to look at those, read those. If this is something that's interesting to you, I hope it will be a blessing to you. We're going to continue this going forward, so I hope that you'll join us again next week as we look at patronage, uh, which is kind of a foreign thing to us. It might sound even strange. It's not a word that we use a whole lot, but it plays heavily into the biblical worldview, and so I hope that you'll join us next week as we continue the series. Until then, take care, and God bless.